enclosed is a PDF attachment, a picture of yourself in a boat on a river. It's a river that flows in two directions. Make that three. It's a magic river, that's how. And it's flowing down the Erie Canal to... You unlock this door with the key of imagination. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance of things and I am Hi again, and welcome to Sound, Sight, and Mind, the Twilight Zone podcast where three brothers talk about Twilight Zone three episodes at a time. I am Steve Andrade, and here, as always with me, are my brothers Chris Andrade. Hello. And Ken Andrade. Hello. And welcome to, this is our first podcast of 2018, first of the new year. Yay! Hooray! We made it. <laughs> we made it just uh, 11 months and a half months ago till the next one. <laughs> and uh, we decided that for this podcast, we were going to uh, take a suggestion from one of our listeners, Max, from the internet, uh, <laughs> suggested that we pick episodes that maybe don't get a lot of don't get a lot of popularity. Uh, that's not the right way to say it. They don't get a lot of talk. They don't get a lot of regard, but for whatever reason, uh, we like them. We think they're pretty good episodes. And so we decided to shine the light on some of these, uh, we we were calling them forgotten favorites, but I think it's probably more accurate to call them B-listers or C-listers. Just, uh, episodes that for some reason or other never quite crack that top 10 cut. Mm. So... We are going to start with an episode from the first season, Nightmare as a Child. This was episode 29 from season one, written by Rod Serling, directed by Alvin Ganser, uh, originally broadcast April 29th, 1960. And uh, interesting thing, um, music was by Jerry Goldsmith, who you know we mm-hmm. talked about on earlier podcasts, had a very, very... Uh, brilliant career in the 70s and 80s especially uh, but he composed the music for this one and here is Rod Serling's opening narration month of November hot chocolate and a small cameo of a child's face imperfect only in its solemnity and these are the improbable ingredients to a human emotion an emotion say like fear But in a moment, this woman, Helen Foley, will realize fear. She will understand what are the properties of terror. A little girl will lead her by the hand and walk with her into a nightmare. So here's a quick story rundown, if you're not familiar with the episode. Uh, Helen Foley, who is a young school teacher, comes home to her apartment and finds a strange girl sitting on the steps outside. Uh... She starts talking to her, uh, ends up inviting her in for a cup of hot chocolate. The little girl is very, uh, very strange, very solemn and serious. Uh, she says her name is Marky, and she seems to know a great many things about Miss Helen Foley. She knows about a burn she got on her elbow, and she knows other things about how she likes to drink her hot chocolate and strange little details about her life that, you know, you don't think that just the average child on the street would know. Uh, as she's talking to Helen, she then appears to get scared and says, there's a man outside, I've got to leave and go by the back door. Uh, man knocks on her door and introduces himself to Helen. 
Uh, his name's Peter Selden. He says that he worked for Helen's mother when Helen was just a little girl, and he was there at the unfortunate incident, which they don't exactly say what it is at the moment. And it's revealed that Helen doesn't exactly remember what happened when she was a little girl. Something happened to her mother, but her memory is faulty and she can't really remember what. Uh, They talk for a little while longer. Um, Helen hears the little girl, Marky, singing and comments about it to uh, Peter, who does not seem to hear it. Uh, Helen mentions the fact that the girl's name is Marky, and Peter Selden says, oh, that's what we used to call you when you were a little girl. And he actually has a photo of her as a little girl, and of course, the little girl is the Marky who is outside the stairs. Um, Selden leaves, Marky reappears, and basically uh, tells Helen pretty much flat out that she is, she knows all about Helen because she is her. She is her as a child, and Helen has to remember what happened that night years ago. Uh, Helen finally remembers that when she was a little girl, somebody came into her house and murdered her mother and was uh, going to kill her as well because she saw the murder, but she screamed so loud that the neighbors came and the man ran out. When she comes back to the present from this memory, Peter Selden is back in the apartment and basically admits to her everything that he had killed her mother because he had worked and was doing the books for her but then he was stealing and she threatened to go to the police and he ended up killing her and had to run out and he's since then he's been keeping tabs on Helen to make sure that she didn't tell the police and make sure that her memory stayed faulty but now that she remembers it's time for him to to get rid of her and so that way he won't uh, be indicted for the murder. Uh, They struggle, uh, run out of the apartment, struggle on the stairs, and then Peter ends up falling down the stairs. Looks like he uh, breaks his neck and dies at the base of the stairwell. Uh, Police come, and basically it wraps up everything. They talk about the fact that she was very lucky, and, you know, Helen could have been murdered if, you know, if uh, Peter hadn't fallen down the stairs. And uh, Helen is in her apartment when she hears a little girl's voice singing again. She goes out, but instead of Marky, it's another little girl who is in the apartment and uh, just basically a happy child, and Helen is relieved that the nightmare seems to be over. And here is Rod Sterling's closing narration. Miss Helen Foley, who has lived in night and who will wake up to morning. Miss Helen Foley, who took a dark spot from the tapestry of her life and rubbed it clean, then stepped back a few paces and got a good look. At the Twilight Zone. So this uh, cast includes Janice Rule, who played Helen Foley, uh, Terry Burnham played the little girl Marky, and Shepard Strudwick played Peter Selden. There's also a little uh, cameo of the little girl at the end was played by Suzanne Capito, who we see uh, a few seasons later as the l- evil little girl in Caesar and Me, which we talked about on a previous podcast. piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, so she's a little happy girl here, and then she grows up to be the most evil child in the world for little Caesar. But she didn't lose her delightful smile. <laughs> no, she's very delightful when she's talking about, you know, murder. Anywho, um, this was Ken's pick for a forgotten favorite or a B-lister zone episode. So, Ken, why don't you mm-hmm. tell us why you chose this one? Yeah, so I like this episode as this little 
kind of contained, almost noir story. There's something sort of Hitchcockian about it, um, with the whole the murder of the mother and the creepy guy coming mm. back to kind of finish the job. And I think it's well acted. I think Janice Rule is great as Helen Foley. I think she does a good job of, you know, being this this warm teacher character who's who's trying to be nice to this little girl, but then she keeps getting kind of exasperated because Mar- the the Marky vision or whatever she is keeps kind of pushing her with these these memories and it's kind of putting Helen on tilt and she's still trying to keep her composure, but she you see like this is getting to her, she's getting somewhere. And I think Terry Burnham, for a kid, you know, a kid actor in the Twilight Zone universe, does a pretty good job as Marky. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't have a lot of kind of film noir touchstones, but the the first thing it reminded me of when Peter is being his sort of sympathetic self for, or playing the little game with Helen and talking about their memories and stuff and hasn't quite revealed the whole murder thing. For some reason, it, it, the first thing I think of is the secret life of Walter Mitty, and <laughs> and in like the scene where he's where, where he's Karloff is there exactly yeah, and he's like this sympathetic character, and then you slowly start to learn. This is know. the old uh, the first film version of it with Danny Kaye, not the Ben Stiller version. For yes. our listeners out there, <laughs> yeah, it's a very different movie than the Ben Stiller version, <laughs> and uh, it's got like the fun. Hitchcock, you know, the classic old-timey death of the the guy tumbling down the stairs, which, you know, has that, like, psycho vibe and also... Well, you know, it's interesting you say Hitchcockian and, and psycho because... To me, the ending suffers from what I call the psycho problem. Yes, you know, exactly. Where, where <laughs> yes, here, here come the cops to do their, their armchair analysis. Well, it's really remarkable that the, she had the repressed memory and something out of the lady's psyche. It's like, just in case the viewers are stupid. Right. And also, in, in, psycho, in psycho, isn't that delivered by... Isn't it like a professional it's a, psychiatrist? It's a psychiatrist. Right. So it makes a little more sense than to to have this random detective being like, yeah, imagine all along this vision in her mind. It's a little, dumb. yeah, that's kind of stupid. And it's that kind of thing that I think keeps an episode like this of becoming one of the greats. Um, mm-hmm. It's a good story, but you have it contained in one tiny location it almost all takes place in the apartment except the part that's in the uh hallway of the apartment Mm -hmm. or the brief flashback of the mother's death um so it's visually not a very striking episode it's got a little bit of those cornball elements that feel like they might be borrowed from other material um but I still, I still think in terms of those B-list, as we're calling them, Twilight Zone episodes, it's pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some strong performances. There's, there's a little bit weird pacing of it too. Like why Selden leaves and comes back? Yeah, is that's kind con- of odd. That's confusing because that, supposedly he thinks he happened to like, he happened to see her. He was driving by and she sees him in the car and is startled a little. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the things Marky's pushing her on is that, you know, you've you saw that man. You did know that man, didn't you? Right. Like, no, I didn't see anyone I knew. So so he goes to check it out and then he leaves and then comes back to kill her. It's it's a little 
Yeah. Little weird. Right. It does make for that nice reveal when she snaps out of the memory of the murder of her mother. Right. And, and I there. think that's it. Is yeah. That it was a trade off there. Well, it's funny because uh, Shepard Stridwick is Peter Selden. Uh, he reminded me so much of Ray Wise in Twin Peaks. Uh, hmm. There's something like about the way he acts. And I don't know if you guys are Twin Peaks watchers. Especially there's a little line when he's first talking to Helen and he says, like, I had a little crush on you. That was a huge yeah, red that flag. Was, yeah, right <laughs> that's, that's fucking creepy. And yeah. like, so, like, yeah, that, like, set up And I know weird... terminology changes a little, but, yeah, that's... Still, like, she was supposed like to be, like, you're what, way like too seven old. years old. Yeah. And, yeah, so there, there's a little creepiness there. And, you know, obviously it wasn't meant to be as creepy as I think I'm making it out in my head, but... Um, I think that really adds to it. That was an odd turn of phrase. <laughs> it's funny you talk about like Hitchcockian because a lot of the uh, criticisms that I've read on this, especially in um, the Twilight Zone Companion, um, is the fact that there's no supernatural elements. So it's more like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents right. rather than a Twilight right. Zone. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true too. They they provide the explanation for the the psychological rather than some sort of other right which you know we've talked about that's happened before like even the the pilot episode exactly um, right you know that's not out of the realm of possibility for twilight zone so if if maybe if the detectives didn't do the little pat speech at the end and you mm-hmm. just left it as sort of that mystery maybe it would have felt a little bit more uh, uh right yeah. it could have been a supernatural protection thing yeah right yeah or if if they had inserted a shot maybe uh instead of peter selden suddenly becoming the world's clumbiest man and falling down the stairs. Um, if they had done like a shot where he sees Marky or something, you know, to maybe push it. Yeah. Into, that would, like totally push it into like a supernatural realm. Uh, again, it's not necessary. Twilight Zone doesn't always need to be something supernatural, but right. it would have just uh, changed that a little bit. Mm-hmm. And a uh, little bit of trivia for this one. Helen Foley was the name of one of Rod Serling's favorite teachers when he was growing up. That's right. <laughs> and was also used as the name of the teacher in the Twilight Zone, the movie remake of It's a Good Life. Mm-hmm. The woman who goes to uh, the wacky house with the little kid who can, with all the gnarly powers. Put him out in the cornfield. Yeah. So yeah, this is this is um it's an interesting one. It does have like a little bit of darkness to it, which is kind of kind of neat, you know, in a, in a very noir way, like you said. I think Stredwick makes a great villain because I don't know if it's just like nineteen sixties guy teeth, you know, probably yeah, probably like teeth. smoking two packs a day, and but he's yeah, got the- like really creepy teeth like his smile <laughs> yeah there is something about his mouth it's very like, off-putting yeah. definitely creepy teeth creepy teeth it's it's <laughs> called gum disease really it's just gum yeah. disease but... <laughs> i need a guy who's we... keeping hey who's that creepy tooth guy we saw walking around oh get me strudwick yeah, yeah. <laughs> back in the 60s we called gingivitis creepy teeth <laughs> <laughs> yeah okay so um that's a that's a good one to check out if um you know, if you have watched a lot of the Twilight Zones that make the the lists every year and make the marathons, um, it's it's a good one to check out if you want to see something that's not one of the more well known ones, but it has a lot of interest to it. Yeah. And now uh, we're gonna move to our next one. Uh, this is my pick for a forgotten favorite. For this one, we're jumping way ahead to season five, the final season of Twilight Zone, which was. 
uh, a mixed bag of quality. And this one is, it's, it's, I said this when I picked it, probably the stupidest name of any Twilight Zone episode, Ring-A-Ding Girl, uh, episode 13 from season 5, uh, written by Earl Hamner Jr., directed by Alan Crossland Jr., originally aired December 27th, 1963, stars Maggie McNamara and Mary Monday. Uh, David Macklin, Betty Lou Gerson, Vic Perrin, George Mitchell, uh, and here is Rod Serling's opening narration. Introduction to Bunny Blake, occupation film actress, residence Hollywood, California, or anywhere in the world the cameras happen to be grinding. Bunny Blake is a public figure. What she wears, eats, thinks, says is news. But underneath the glamour, the makeup, the publicity, the build-up, the costuming, is a flesh-and-blood person, a beautiful girl, about to take a long and bizarre journey into the Twilight Zone. So as the episode opened, we see Bunny Blake, who is a movie star, we are told, uh, about to take a trip to Italy to film a, a movie. Packing up her things, her assistant is desperately trying to get her to the flight on time, but Bunny is... Uh, kind of a flighty personality, and she says, oh, I can't leave without packing up my rings. Uh, I'm the ring-a-ding girl, and it was your idea that the ring-a-ding girl should collect rings. Um, <laughs> I still don't know why she's the ring-a-ding girl, but... Yeah, it's her, right ca- it's, it's her catchphrase. Right. <laughs> she uses... No, seriously, she uses, she uses it, it a couple times. Yeah. Right? yeah. She uses Ring-a-ding. it twice, but... Uh, anyways, we'll get to that. <laughs> so, anyways... So she gets a present from her fan club from her hometown, which is a special ring that they all got together and picked for her. Um, she puts it on. It's based, a very kind of plain ring, large round stone. But as she puts it on, she sees a vision of her sister in the ring, uh, imploring her to come home. Uh, then we cut to, that's when Rod Serling's narration comes in. And then uh, we cut back to... Uh, her sister Hildy at home, uh, vacuuming the house, doing some domestic tasks, uh, telling her son to go mow the lawn and clean his room. They've got to get things ready. There's going to be a big Founder's Day picnic coming up. Um, she's vacuuming, and all of a sudden the vacuum turns off. She can't figure out why it's not working. She turns around, and there's her sister Bunny right there in the house. And she says, what are you doing here? She's like, well, I was on the way to Italy to film a movie, but I just had to stop here and see everybody. And uh, basically, they have a nice little reunion. She talks to her about, you know, Hollywood and talks to her nephew uh, and thanks them for the ring. Uh, and then she sees another vision in the ring of the town doctor also asking Bunny Blake to come home because they need her help. Uh, she faints. The doctor is summoned to examine her and Bunny tries to talk it off, saying she just did it as a way to get him there so she could see him, uh, to ask him to cancel the Founder's Day picnic. Uh, and the doctor is just confused, says, well, we can't do that, we've been planning all year for this. And she says, uh, I've, I'm only home for one day before I have to leave again, and I want it to be just like an average, ordinary day. I want to see all my friends, but I don't want to you know, have people crowding around me. I don't want to be at the picnic and have tons of people looking for autographs. I just want it to be a normal day. And the doctor thinks she's just basically being very, uh, very selfish and self-centered and tells her that, you know, it's not going to happen. Uh, Bunny 
decides to go to the local TV station and make an announcement on air that she's going to do a special one-woman show uh, that evening, uh, the evening of the Founders Picnic, uh, in the high school auditorium, and she wants everybody in town to go and see her. And uh, her sister sees the broadcast, and it's just aghast, like, why are you doing this? Like, what what are you doing this for? And uh, basically wondering why she's so desperate to... Uh, get everybody away from the picnic to come see her. It seems like she's acting like a typical Hollywood starlet who only cares about herself. Um, Hildy says that she and her son, and uh, they're going to go to the picnic because that's what they've been planning to do. But then Bunny convinces her that it's really important to her that she comes and sees the show. So Hildy says, okay, of course, we'll come and see you if it means that much to you starts to rain outside as uh, they're getting ready to go and they're listening to the radio when there's an announcement uh, that comes. Uh, They hear sirens outside. Uh, They look to see what's going on and they listen to the radio announcement as Bunny quietly says goodbye and then walks out the door into the rain. And once she uh, goes out into the rain, she vanishes. The news comes over the radio that there was a plane crash in the center of town, uh, right where the Founders Picnic was going to be held. Uh, The plane also was carrying Bunny Blake, who was on her way to Italy to film a movie. And uh, Bunny Blake is confirmed dead among the wreckage. And luckily, most of the town was in the high school auditorium to see the show that Bunny Blake was supposed to be putting on. They can't understand why there are these conflicting reports. They're not sure what's happening. But all that they do know is that Bunny Blake has died in a plane crash, and the most of the town uh, is safe because they weren't at the picnic. Uh, Hildy looking to see if Bunny's there because she can't understand it. She, you know, was just talking to Bunny. How could she be on the plane? But she's gone, and she finds the ring that they had sent her, which is on the ground, and now the stone is chipped and burnt. And then as she looks at the ring... Rod Serling comes with his closing narration. We are all travelers. The trip starts in a place called birth and ends in that lonely town called death. And that's the end of the journey, unless you happen to exist for a few hours like Bunny Blake in the misty regions of the Twilight Zone. So, like I said, this was my pick. Uh, This is one of those episodes that I really like because it's so offbeat it's just it's got a certain Mm -hmm. something to it the whole conceit of it it's not your average kind of twisty ghost story it's not your average kind of time travel thing it's it's never really fully explained and i think that's the reason that i find it so compelling um what do you guys think well i'm gonna call this now and if you haven't seen uh, the latest Star Wars movie. Skip ahead about forty-five seconds at this point. Spoiler uh, am I going to have to? Am I going to have to mute? I haven't heard it. I haven't seen it yet. La 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 la. <laughs> Last Jedi ripped off Ring a Ding Girl. There, I said it. <laughs> Hometown hero, astral projection, allowing everyone else to get out. It's all yeah. there. All the elements are there. It's definitely there. It's definitely there. Does I, Luke Skywalker say Ring a Ding? Ring a Ding. Um, I think. <laughs> Ring a ding! Uh, I was going to go to Tasha Station pick up some power converters. <laughs> I think there's also. Um, I'm wondering if Richard Kelly 
watch this episode before he made Donnie Darko too, because you ah, know that that one plays yeah. with with the plane with, with the, the plane, plane. and it's mm. it's uh, it's a little different because Donnie's on the ground, but the whole like. Yeah, that whole sacrificing to save other people involved with the plane crash. That one's a little more time travel weird, but um, mm-hmm. definitely similar elements. And and I, I do like the conceit of this episode, and um, I think it's a really cool idea. And I think what I've found with all, all three of these episodes, at least for me... The reason that they sort of feel like forgotten favorites to me, that they never achieve that status, is I, I feel like they're all like just on the verge of being really cool and really great. Mm-hmm. And this is one where I think the concept is super cool, but having it having it like uh, all hinging on Bunny being this flighty Hollywood actress, that, like that's fine, but... I don't know if maybe I wish there was just a little bit more recognition in her about these sort of premonitions she's getting Mm because everything moves along. So matter of fact, where she's just like, oh, I fainted because I wanted to see you, doctor. I'm going to have a show. There's Mm -hmm. she sees the visions and she she reacts weirdly to the visions. But there's never that extra kind of like, I feel like something's off. Right. right, and um, so the the episode does kind of always feel a little odd to me, and and maybe that's what makes it work is because it's so just like things are going along with this crazy actress and whatever, mm-hmm. and then you have this big like kind of dramatic ending to it. Yeah. I'll be honest, I made the mistake of of watching this while lying down on the couch, and I had to watch it twice because I fell asleep <laughs> <laughs> the first time. I think that the middle drags because you're watching this self absorbed actress. They haven't really. Well, one of the things that's clever, but at the same time, I think impacts it is you don't get that she's at the center of the weirdness right away. You know, yeah. you've got this ring and you've got the vision showing up in the ring. And so it's it's almost like this red herring that, you know, what's the vision and why are they calling to her and saying we need you? And then it turns out that she's the agent of all this, that she mm-hmm. somehow was able to be in two places at once to to save everyone, to engineer it. And even, I mean, the, when they say when you say it begins to rain, I mean, it's pouring buckets. So yeah. no one was going to be at that picnic anyway. <laughs> so, it, but, but Well, it, it depends. All, if they had a tent and they were making fried dough... You know, yeah, you get the diehards. My wife would yeah. be there if it was the fried dough. That's yeah. you know, she's, getting, she'd be I only right have one line. time a year to get goddamn fried dough. I'm getting fried. Dough. I got an umbrella. We're going, but <laughs> but it's almost like you know, there's there's that supernatural element again of even you know just trying to conspire to get everything possible to get everyone away from the picnic grounds you know we'll wreck the weather and if that's not enough to keep everyone away because they actually talk about that if if you look back they're talking well the weather may not hold off oh but we may still you know and then it's almost like this this show at the auditorium is just the last ditch attempt it's it's very clever in some ways but in the middle it's Mm. it's not obvious where it's going which is kind of i think what you're saying ken i'll Mm -hmm. agree that i don't think they have enough of her being earnest you know so much of yeah. her is like the flighty uh the flighty hollywood actress uh there's a couple moments like there's the moment when uh i believe she's talking to the high school uh custodian mm. and she just turns around and all of a sudden she like kind of drops the persona and she says don't go to that picnic yeah 
Right. And there's a, only a few moments of that, so that's probably, you know, why. Because for most of it, she's just like, la-da-da, ring-a-ding. Yeah, it probably would only be like one, maybe one conversation with her sister that mm-hmm. sort of drops the acting. It doesn't have to be like a don't go to the picnic conversation, but just just like one little moment to yeah. kind of... To, to tip the hand a little bit that something's yeah. up. yeah. yeah. I do like, though, there's a couple little things on rewatching that I picked up um, that I think are just nice little clever drop-ins in the dialogue. When Bunny first appears and she unplugs the uh, vacuum and, uh, you know, Hildy doesn't know that she's there yet and she's you know, turns around, uh, the first thing Bunny says to her is boo, which I think is funny because, right. you know, yeah. she's, <laughs> for all intents and purposes, she's a ghost there. And then there's a, a line a little bit later where she says, I'm on borrowed time as it is. Like, I only have this one day to be here. Mm-hmm. And right. once you get to the end, he's like, she's definitely on borrowed time. She only has this small amount to be there for whatever yeah. reason. I would think we, we should mention, too, if people haven't seen the episode, as the visions come on the ring later, uh, there's visions that she has of herself on the airplane right. when there's turbulence. So, again, it kind of blurs that line of, like, is she in two places at once? Is this is she traveled in time? Like what's ha- it's never clearly explained and I think again that's that's the thing that I kind of like. I like when there's a little bit of mystery there. Yeah. Right. And uh and I also like, you know, just for uh it's a very kind of like sentimental cliché thing but when she finally leaves and you know uh Hildy and her son are a little distracted like l- looking at where the sirens are going and the the ambulances and, uh, right after Bunny. that awesome lightsaber yeah, and, battle, too. Yeah. Oh, wait, am I? No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're ruining it for me. Now I know everything that happens. I can't see the movie. Um, but, like, Bunny just says very quietly goodbye, and then she turns and walks into the rain. And it's it's been done a million times, but I th- still think it's really effective there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it, it is. And, again, some strong acting performances mm-hmm. in there, too. Yeah. Yeah, Maggie McNamara was in the movie uh, Three Coins in a Fountain. That's what she's most famous for. Um, sadly, she uh, had a pretty sad later life. She wasn't getting the acting jobs and ended up uh, committing suicide when she was, I want to say, like 45 or something. God damn. Curse of the Twilight Zone, man. There's yeah. seriously of... some... Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. Um, do you want to hear a funny quote from someone who survived this episode? Oh God, that'd sure. be nice. This is uh this is from David Macklin, who played the nephew. And right. I imagine this quote comes from when he's probably an, an old coot at this point. <laughs> it's, it's it's a bit long, so I apologize, but here goes. I'm afraid most of my comments on working on that episode are a bit negative. First of all, I didn't care for the script or my character. I was getting much bigger parts, but it was slow and I went for the money. My first e- <laughs> my first experience was makeup, where some old hack gave me the worst makeup I've ever experienced. It seemed he didn't think I was important enough to give the kind of makeup he did on Maggie and Mary. Maybe he didn't have time after doing them and thought he would catch up on the kid. Anyway, he simply <laughs> smeared pancake all over my face, including my mouth, eyelashes, and brows. I had the sense to remove the makeup from those areas, but I still looked lousy. <laughs> it was that show that taught me to bring my own makeup to the set. Then... <laughs> sorry, this, this goes on. Then... 
I went to wardrobe and they dressed me in the worst shirt ever seen on television. <laughs> oh my god. That show also taught me to be more discriminating about wardrobe. Mr. Gosselin was rather aloof and gave me no help or encouragement. In fact, I think his coverage of the final scene stinks. It didn't get a reaction <laughs> shot and should have. On the positive side, Maggie and Mary were a delight to work with and I love that car. Poor Maggie. She had to wear that one dress through the whole show, and they never cleaned it. It was getting a little ripe near the end. I had no idea at the time that I was working on a classic TV show and that a lot of people would like that segment. I certainly had no idea it would be rerun so much. I wouldn't be surprised if it were the most run TV show ever, and I received no residuals. Bah! See, I would have read that in a different voice. I would. I, I'm like, thinking like Paul Lind. Yeah, I I received no residuals. Ah, <laughs> yeah. oh, poor Maggie wore the worst awful. dress. It was so ripe by the end of it. It seemed he didn't think I was important enough to give the kind of makeup he did on There Maggie. you go. He dressed me in the worst shirt I'd ever seen on television. He simply smeared pancake all over my face, including my mouth and eyelashes. And not the kind with syrup, if you know what I mean. David Macklin, I apologize if you're not either a crusty old man or a bitter old queen, because that's, that's all I can picture you as now, thanks for that quote. Uh, oh. Yeah. Anyways, um, <laughs> yeah. This so this was my pick. I really like it, flaws and all. Um, I I feel like uh, it's it's a neat one, and it's it's definitely got a little bit of a uh, little bit of unique identity that sets it apart from other Twilight Zones, and I, I think makes it uh, a little bit more memorable than otherwise it could have been. Mm-hmm. So let's see. Now we are going to go to our final episode i think probably the strongest episode of the three i would say that we're going to talk about today this one is back to season two it's called shadow play uh episode 26 of season two written by great charles beaumont adapted from a short story directed by john brahm originally aired on may 5th 1961 uh, stars Dennis Weaver, Harry Towns, Wright King, Bernie Hamilton, and uh, a handful of other people playing the m- sometimes multiple parts, as we'll find out. So, uh, the episode opens up in a courtroom as Adam Grant, played by Dennis Weaver, is sitting as the jury is getting ready to read their verdict in a murder trial. Uh, the jury finds him guilty of murder. The judge sentences him to death. Uh, Adam Grant begins laughing hysterically and then screaming that he refuses to die again. He won't be murdered again. Uh, tries to tell the people there that he's dreaming and if he's executed, they'll all be dead too. Uh, and as they go to lock him up and bring him to prison, in comes Rod Serling's narration. Adam Grant. A nondescript kind of man found guilty of murder and sentenced to the electric chair. Like every other criminal caught in the wheels of justice, he's scared, right down to the marrow of his bones. But it isn't prison that scares him, the long, silent nights of waiting, the slow walk to the little room, or even death itself. It's something else that holds Adam Grant in the hot, sweaty grip of fear. Something worse than any punishment this world has to offer. Something found only in the Twilight Zone. So we go back to the prison and Adam Grant is there on death row and talking to one of the other inmates. 
uh, talking about the electric chair and the fact that he's done it all before because every night he's had the same dream and he just ends up dying every night. And only the face has changed, but everything else is always the same. Uh, Meanwhile, the newspaper editor who was at uh, at the verdict, Paul Carson, uh, visits the house of the district attorney, Henry Ritchie. Uh, he's been drinking and is a little bit uh, little bit tipsy and uh, argues with the district attorney that uh, Adam Grant has something with his, his argument that they're all living in his dream, that they should at least declare a mistrial or you know get him tested for psychological fitness for execution. And uh, they are having kind of an impassioned conversation about, like, you should tell the district attorney, you should at least go to talk to him and and, and see him and, and, you know, see what he says. And uh, cut back to the prison where Adam Grant is waiting because he knows just like every night uh, the district attorney will arrive. And he comes and uh, talks to him and tries to basically reason with him. And as uh, Grant is basically telling him that nothing is going to change it's all going to happen the way it's supposed to and uh and tells him that you can tell it's a dream because none of this is realistic uh when would the district attorney come and visit uh a man on death row it's, it happens that way because that's the way he's seen in movies and why is the execution happening at midnight it's like, because that's the way he's read about it in cheap detective stories and seen it in and television shows and movies so that's the way his brain thinks and he tells him that uh, every night it's always the same, only the faces are different and sometimes switched around. Sometimes the people are playing different parts, basically. Uh, he points out that uh, it, to prove that it's a nightmare, he'll, he tells him that go home. It's like when you when you left home, your wife had a steak cooking in the oven. When you go home, it's going to be different. Uh, and Richie leaves... When he gets home, he does find that the steak that his wife was cooking is now a roast in the oven. Uh, so unsettled by this, he finally, as they're getting closer to midnight, he finally decides to call the governor and ask for a pardon. But as they're trying to get through and have that happen, uh, Grant is being led to the electric chair, the hood is being put on, and finally at the stroke of midnight, the execution occurs. As it occurs... Uh, you see a shot of the district attorney and the newspaper editor and the district attorney's wife in their home, and suddenly uh, the clock on the wall vanishes, and the scene changes back to the courtroom. And once again, Grant is there in the courtroom as they're reading the verdict, but every uh, person there is changed. The judge is now not the judge who found him guilty or sentenced him at the beginning of the episode. The judge is now one of the other inmates. And his defender, uh, his public defender, is now one of the other inmates who was in the prison with him. And it all starts over again. And Rod Serling comes in to close. We know that a dream can be real. But who ever thought that reality could be a dream? We exist, of course, but, but how? In what way? As we believe, as flesh and blood human beings, or are we simply parts of someone's feverish, complicated nightmare? Think about it. And then ask yourself, do you live here, in this country, in this world, or do you live instead in the twilight zone? (laughs) 
So Chris, this was your pick. Why don't you tell a little bit why you chose this one? Well, this one, um, this is another one of those episodes that first uh, I first encountered through the 80s remake. Uh, and it was one that stayed with me. And I remember talking with, with Dad about it for quite a while after I first saw the episode about what hmm. was going on. Um, and yet when I was doing the, you know, looking, f- trying to pick the, the kind of forgotten favorite, it's not one that turns up on a lot of people's lists. Um, it's, it's fairly deep. It's fairly dense. I mean, it's the, the philosophical concept essentially comes from ancient Chinese philosophy. Uh, the, the classic, uh, Chuang Chu dreamed he was a butterfly and then didn't know if he was a man dreaming he was a butterfly or a butterfly dreaming he was a man. Hmm. Um, you know, do we live in a dream or, you know, how do we know will we one day wake? And that whole concept, uh, is, is unsettling in any case. And the way it's played out in this episode is fairly terrifying. And for me, this is almost, almost a perfect episode. Mm-hmm. There's, mm-hmm. there's so much about it. That's good. And then there's the damn pot roast. <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll come back to that. But one of the interesting, one of the very interesting things about it, we've talked before about how some episodes seemed almost like they were made for the stage. Mm-hmm. This one actually starts with a lights up on a courtroom set. Yeah. It starts in absolute darkness. And the first thing is you hear the bang of the gavel and you hear the voice and then the lights come up on the set. And it's clear like right from the beginning it's clear that something is off in some way um it it is that little tip of the hand there that it's that not as all as it seems uh that it it seems to be taking place in this this kind of little neat package one of the neat things that tips you off in the beginning is that uh adam grant is mouthing along with Mm -hmm. all the other dialogue and he does that a few times yeah Right, and it's it, it's really well done, and I think if it had been left where he's the only one who knows that that it's a dream, you know, and he's protesting, and everyone else is just convinced he's crazy. But then we have that that scene with the uh, with the attorney and going back home and. And, you know, talking about it and saying, well, I I don't know, I'm almost starting to believe him. What's that? And then he goes and talks with Grant again, who then sends him home to find that the steaks his wife were holding for him in the oven have magically transformed into a roast. Uh, Indicating. I also want to talk about those steaks. Those were for two people. Those were like two 24 rounds T bones. (laughs) Well, in the 60s. (laughs) Absolutely. Those are pretty massive. But, um,. You know, I'm sure washed down with a good glass of whiskey, too. Oh, yeah. That DA was already swacked by the time he got there. <laughs> <laughs> or yes, whoever he, oh, that's the right. reporter. That's right. Yep. Um, but it's like it. it's that to me is almost the one false note in it because it takes it out of the psychological drama. Now, it does add then to the are we characters in somebody else's dream and what the implications of that are. Um, and maybe that's what they were going for. But by taking the emphasis off Grant and and putting the realization on another character, 
instead of just letting them argue and doubt and, and, and letting it stew. I think it weakens it a little bit. Um, that's, you know, that's, that's my perspective. I think there are so many elements that are great. The fact that he's pointing out all the ridiculous inconsistencies as he's figuring it out, having lived through this several times. Mm-hmm. Um, and this episode, by the way, has been cited as the inspiration for the film Groundhog Day, mm-hmm. uh, as mm-hmm. well as for a, a short film called 12.01 p.m. Um, that we actually know the guy who wrote the music for that, <laughs> the original oh, cool. short. That was uh, Steve Melillo. Oh, uh, hey. It was, it was actually nominated uh, for, I, I believe it was an Academy Award for that short. Um, they later developed it into a, uh, a TV movie with Jonathan Silverman that did absolutely terribly, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> um, but the idea of, of reliving the same experience over and over and learning as you relive it. So obviously he's mouthing along with everything, but also he's starting to figure out like these details don't even make sense. Like, do you really think I was sentenced and I'm going to be, you know, executed at midnight the next night and, mm-hmm. and this date and really there's a black guy in the jail playing harmonica. I mean, come mm-hmm. on, this is so Hollywood. So there's, there's that crazy there's, guy in there. And then, right. Yeah. There's that whole kind of meta, uh, meta fiction, self-awareness, breaking of the fourth wall. So many brilliant little turns in this and then that that wonderful reveal at the end where he doesn't you know he doesn't get the reprieve and presumably he's executed only to immediately be back in the courtroom with the cast of characters changed you know it's the same people but in different roles right and it, i mean the, the 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 kind of creeping horror of that and and the whole situation is so good that it's had they omitted the little side trip to the the uh reporter's house attorney's house whatever with the steaks and the roast and everything and just kind of let it let it bubble up in the cell more i think it would have been a bit more satisfying Mm. yeah i think i think that trip to the other characters that's a really interesting theme that's worth full exploration of wait Mm -hmm. are we characters in someone else's dream but you're right here it does muddy the waters a little bit um i think for me this episode is probably at least off the top of my head the most visually interesting episode i've ever seen Mm. because of things like that lights up moment at the at the top um the way it's shot uh, the split screen when he's sort of explaining everything that's going to happen to him in jail. Right. And then you get the the split screen where you see like the electric chair and stuff. Um, it just seemed like they were trying a lot of different things visually that made it really cool to watch, especially for an episode that's just going to mainly take place in like a jail cell in a nondescript mm-hmm. courtroom. Um, and I think the acting is great. And yeah, Dennis th- Weaver is fantastic. Yeah. He's awesome. And, and I think what probably keeps it from being like one of those best of Twilight Zones for me is the fact that even though like the the horror of the episode is achieved so well and and conceptually it's really cool, what it seems to be lacking that makes for those classic Twilight Zones is either a major twist because I wouldn't say that him waking up to live it all over again and the character swapped is necessarily a twist. It's more mm-hmm. of reinforcing what he's been saying the whole time. And then, or 
the fact that it's not a morality tale. There's no mm-hmm. there's no real lesson learned. We don't even know the thing that kind of bugged me a little bit. And I mean, it's not, it's not the point of the episode, but um, did we he don't do know, anything? <laughs> exactly. We don't know who he is. We don't even know if he is in you know in waking life. Is he is he an inmate or mm-hmm. is he just like? your average Joe experiencing this horrible nightmare or is this a reality? We don't really know, but um, it does like nag at you a little bit. And that's, that's also can, you can kind of attribute that to the effect, the effectiveness of the horror is yeah. that sure, you're kind of like, is this guy deserving of this? Like, what right. And if he does, then you yeah. figure it's an interpretation of hell, right? Yeah. You know, always to be going to your death and never getting there. Like that would be okay. That's your, your, you know, ironic punishment for the killer, but we don't know that he did anything. But even right. that, I think that's part of the strength for me is just that that adds to the the nightmare quality of everything. Just mm-hmm. being there and having this happen and having, you know, sometimes because you know sometimes in dreams they have their own weird logic and right stuff will happen and you know I'm you guys probably have had this happen too sometimes you have that thing happen where you wake up out of a dream and for a second you think it's actually happening even though it might oh, yeah. be totally it's implausible you're yeah. like oh no like this is this is happening now like I have to do this like so they they have that power in the dreams to just in, impose a logic and a reality on your brain that you accept and that's I think part of the nightmare of this is like you don't know what exactly he had done to deserve uh, this punishment, but that doesn't really matter. It's just this is this is the nightmare. You're just found guilty, and this is part of it, right? And and I think because it's so dark and and um, it ends the way it does, that that to me is probably why maybe people don't revisit it as much because it kind of does leave you with that like squicky feeling it's like yeah. it's disturbing Th- this guy is damned so yeah. you don't you don't get that like oh the glasses broke ah what a twist it's more just like <laughs> oh shit he's gonna get electrocuted for eternity it's very black mirror it's like i don't know if you guys watch this season of black mirror i haven't caught up yet there's a really great episode that deals with one of the plot points is um kind of a digital recreation of this guy Basically, like, they find a way to kind of download your being, your soul, into a digital file that's kind of like a living hologram. And he's put in this museum, and you could just electrocute him over and over and over again. Ooh. Um, it's super, super dark, but that's what I was thinking when I was watching this. I was yeah. like, ugh, this is some dark shit for the 60s. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, it's, it's yeah, this one is definitely, it's got the most interesting uh, layering to it. And that whole idea that it's his dream and these other characters are going and having their own conversation, not, you know, by themselves. Does that mean that he is dreaming that too? Is that, does he, you know, is that part of the dream or they, do they live their own, you know, fully formed lives outside of his immediate dream consciousness? You know, it's, it's really interesting and uh, it can really take you down some twisty paths if you start thinking about it. No, the mm-hmm. short story that Beaumont wrote was titled Traumerei, which is a German word which means reverie. Usually you think of it as, as kind of a daydream or a, a fantasy of, of your own making. But it's, I th- you know, it also suggests the English word trauma. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh, yeah. uh, it's kind of a, a neat title. And I haven't read the short story. I don't know if 
I am not anything. I don't hmm. believe I have. I have a Charles Beaumont collection, but I don't think it's in there. Have yeah, to I don't think I have that see one. See if we can get that. But I, I'm, I'm, I wonder if you know how and if. I mean, he wrote the screenplay as well, so presumably it hues pretty close to the original. But mm. the the idea that it's you know a reverie, it almost sounds like it's a prison of his own making. You know, why is he? You know, why is this fantasy playing out the same way over and over and over again? And the idea of lucid dreaming, once you realize you're dreaming, you should be able to control it somewhat. And yet all he ever Mm -hmm. does is replay it and recast it. So there is, there are some of those unanswered questions. Yeah. Well, I mean, I wonder too, if like, if this is something that might have happened uh, to Charles Beaumont himself, if he might have had a dream and that inspired him. I was reading... um, about you know we talked before about how you know early on he had some sort of degenerative mental uh disease like either alzheimer's or early onset dementia but before then uh i think it was richard matheson who said most of us just wrote for the twilight zone charles beaumont lived in the twilight zone like his he would just think up these in crazy things and these bizarre situations and his mind would just go into these dark corners and dark places and uh, so I'm wondering, like, how much of this comes from maybe his own experience? Like, maybe he had a recurring dream and, you know, it turned into this script. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it, it's pretty cool that it ended up the way it did because, again, I, I didn't really read the short story either. But when I've read other short stories that have been adapted or when I've read, like, Richard Matheson short stories, some of them are two pages long and and read very much like this episode where it's sort of like you live this nightmare and then it ends and the nightmare continues and that's the story it's this little mm-hmm. kind of slice of horror and then when those get adapted into the twilight zone they get expanded into this more palatable audience friendly thing mm-hmm. where they i don't know if they get like surlingized a little bit but it's sort of like diluted down just enough to be this kind of like entertaining tv show where you're gonna leave feeling you know, a little bit happier and stuff. And this one really keeps that feeling of one of those short, straight horror kind of stories, which seems pretty cool and pretty ballsy. Yeah. This one, uh, this one, I think, I think you guys hit the nail on the head. Like it's, it's maybe a little too dark, which is why it doesn't crack most of the best of lists, but it's definitely super strong episode. Very well acted, very uh, well produced. And uh, definitely, uh, if if you haven't watched it, uh, it's it's worth a watch and then a rewatch. All right, uh, so those are three picks for forgotten favorites or B listers that deserve a little bit of accolade. If you have a Twilight Zone episode that you like, but everybody else seems to poo poo or uh, throw by the wayside, let us know. Uh, send us an email. Uh, sSMpodcast at gmail dot com uh, or you can check us out on instagram at SSM podcast or facebook at SSM podcast and let us know what your forgotten favorite is and uh, maybe we can find a way to talk about it on a future episode i d- I dare you to email in about the bewitching pool I dare you <laughs> someone <laughs> out there thinks it's brilliant do I tell me. Yeah. I know for a fact that the bewitching pool is at least one person's one of their favorite episodes. I, I we should have them on. I want to know. <laughs> I, I want to hear them defend it. Well, we have to coordinate it with their visiting hours first. But <laughs> um, so, speaking of future episodes, uh, next time 
Ken is going to be moderating. And what is our theme for the next podcast? Yeah, so we are going to travel to the distant future, and we're going to go um, down a rabbit hole of dystopian future, which is a pretty common Twilight Zone theme, but this one's going to be special because we're finally going to get around to the episode that anyone I know who is either a Twilight Zone fan or just knows of the show and has never seen it, they all know about the episode Eye of the Beholder, or as a lot of people call it, the one with the pig face people. So uh, I'm <laughs> probably, very excited yeah, to talk about this Probably the one. most iconic episode, I think. I think yeah. so, yeah. Awesome. All right. Um, Ken, did you come up with a catchphrase? A new catchphrase for the new year. I didn't. I oh, no. I completely forgot. In my, in my oh, episodes. no. I had like a month that I didn't come up with anything. Oh, God. <laughs> Well, maybe that can be our New Year's resolution to not try to do a catchphrase anymore. Yeah, you've been trying to kill the catchphrase since day one, man. <laughs> it always just leaves us sad and disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> All right, thanks for listening, and uh, remember to send us your picks for episodes to talk about in the future. Bye. That's right. See ya. See you later. Bye.